thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to the Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts Dr. Lawrence Tam, Dr. Damian Kristoff, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to the Wellness Guys. I'm Lawrence Tam. I'm Damien Kristoff. And I'm Brett Hill. And this is the Wellness Guy Show, a weekly show dedicated to bringing wellness into our lives. And uh, today, this weekend actually, Damien Kristoff has spent the last two days, I guess, at a, a gluten free show. Is that right? I thought it was just gluten free, but it was almost free of everything. Like it, was, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was unbelievable. Amazing. Hopefully, not free of flavor, Damo. Although yeah. it wouldn't oh, have been no. cereal there. Yeah. Well, you know, it's my cereal. Forage was well represented. But I have to say that there was so much bad food there. It was ridiculous. Ridiculous. Like people go to this gluten-free show expecting to find, I don't know, maybe they don't go expecting to find healthy treats, but they just found a whole lot of gluten-free rubbish. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. But anyway, keep it going in the intro because I want to talk more about it. Well, we're just talking, we've just been discussing about the gluten-free show and what you discovered at the gluten-free show. And one of the things that you came up with was that um, there's a whole bunch of people who are just allergic to a lot of things. I see that in, with my, um, you know, my, my daughter who's gone into kindy now and, you know, what you can't bring to school. And it's like, it's ridiculous, right? You can't bring yeah. nuts to school. You can't even, you know, have it as a snack just because it might be someone, not necessarily in the classroom, but someone in the school might have a nut allergy. And I understand that, you know, obviously it's life and death. But, yeah. you know, I don't remember that when I was a kid, um, right. you know, when I went through school at all. Yeah. And um, and obviously, like, within the span of, you know, I'm not that old. So, you know, a span of, like, 10, 15 years, like, all of a sudden, rules have changed. And, you know, my question has always been, you know, why is this happening to us as a human population? How is evolution, you know, quote-unquote evolution, changing so quickly and rapidly? And so we thought we'd do a podcast uh, just on that discussion on allergies, all things allergies. Now, we're not expert. Okay, let's let's be clear. We're not experts in allergies, but we can, you know, definitely. We have Damien Kristoff here who knows a little bit about how the human body works. So we'll we'll <laughs> pass it on to him and and see what he has to say and what we can do about it. Okie dokie. Well, what was happening today was that, and there were some sad stories today. You know, we had forage there. We had it all set up beautifully. And we used an organic apple juice to go in with our uh, our beautiful birch and muesli, and it was all going to be absolutely fantastic, all excellent. And people would say to us, oh, does it have fructose in it? And I'd go, yeah, it does. And I reckon about 60% of the population that went through today's show, which was just supposed to be all about gluten-free, also were looking for fructose-friendly or fructose-free. And for many of you um, who, who don't know what fructose is, it's a sugar that's found in vegetables and fruits. And it's become a huge problem where people can't digest it. Their bacteria balance in the gut is so bad that now when they have this sort of stuff, they get not only uh, diarrhea, but they get pain and bloating and all kinds of dysfunction within their gut. And it became more and more prevalent. I had somebody who said, I've got a tyramine allergy. you know, So she couldn't have something. Then I had a guy come to me and said, I've got a buckwheat allergy. He's allergic to buckwheat like anaphylactic to buckwheat and his mum was wow. anaphylactic to almonds and like oh I'm going God. oh my gosh like this is unbelievable there was one lady who looked like that she was allergic to fresh air like she was the guy, <laughs> she hadn't you know, seen the light of day ever it was amazing but there was this little girl that walked up and she looked at the cereal and um, she kind of turned her nose up and said have you, have you tasted this little girl and I said to her sweetheart and her mum said oh no that's too healthy for her and whisked her away and took her over to the chip stand which is just over there you know <laughs> oh, the gluten free chip stand quarter to nine in the morning like feeding her daughter chips after she walked past with a coffee scroll and i was like oh you gotta be kidding me you know so i think there's a few things that are going on here we've got 
obviously sensitivities and allergies abounding us and like becoming more and more prevalent but we have a push towards alternatives for gluten uh, which are now meaning that people are making very very poor choices and so as a result people are now choosing to buy the poorer quality poor choice gluten-free product and uh, there's a whole lot of implication complication with that yeah and i think that's a really important point to make isn't it like so many people seem to just assume that because it's gluten-free or because it's organic or because it's paleo or whatever it is that therefore it's healthy and, and it's just not true. Like there's heaps of stuff that you can eat and, and, you know, ratios of stuff that you can eat that might not be so healthy for you. And just because it doesn't have certain ingredients in it doesn't automatically make it actually a health food. And so, you know, there's heaps of stuff out there that on the gluten-free market that you look at and just think, well, that's actually not real food. Like that's still processed crap. Uh, it just doesn't happen to have gluten in it. And, uh, and you even see it sometimes. You'll see like a packet of lollies that say gluten-free on them. You know? And you kind of think, well, it's not a health food. It doesn't have gluten. That's great. But it's not actually going to be doing you any favors if you're eating it. One of my, one of my very, very good friends actually makes a gluten-free range of, uh, of candy. And, uh, and, 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 and I don't want to mention um, the sex of this person because it will give the person away. But the, the, uh, the belief system of her health information, food information. <laughs> oh, I said her. Oh, yeah. oh, far, far out. I was going to try to struggle. I was going to oh, say, how are you going to say he or she? Oh, with, I was just going to wait. I'm waiting to for say. You meant well, to it's actually, It's actually a he anyway. Yeah. So, uh, no, well. Oh, it's, now we don't know. Ooh. It's actually both. Uh, it's a boy and girl. It's a she-male. And, uh, <laughs> so, Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. Like, it's marketable. Here's, this is the thing. And so there is definitely a market out there for people to eat some, some sugar-free sweets and maybe some uh, – or sorry, some gluten-free sweets. Uh, there's also a market out there for people to have gluten-free um, bread and gluten-free pastas and gluten-free everything. However, what we're finding now is that people are choosing to go gluten-free as a health choice. But as a result of making that health choice, they're actually now choosing foods that are lower in protein because if you get bread that's not made from grain, it's made from potatoes or made from corn maize or starch, you're actually now just eating a bucket load of starch. And so one of the comments that I had throughout the week was, since I've been diagnosed with celiac disease, I've put on 15 kilos. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I said to them, you know, often I'd say, well, have you just moved your whole lifestyle across to the gluten-free alternative? And they've gone, yeah, yeah, what else am I supposed to do? So I think what people missed when they were doing gluten-free was the opportunity to really clean their diet up and just to really take out a lot of junk get rid of a whole lot of the you know nasty stuff from their diet and just freshen it up and put a whole lot of fresh produce in there and just be really clever with the grain choices that they made and uh, but that certainly hasn't happened well that's I think the that's thing. the point isn't it like you don't have to replace it like it's like just because no. you're choosing not to have bread doesn't mean you have to have another bread like substance to replace it with like you could actually just choose to have the sandwich without the bread and have you know chicken salad and yeah. so you know you could actually completely change what you're eating and, and I find often that's when people get into trouble is when they try and sort of come up with these replacements for you know whatever food they're going to stop eating when in reality, what they should be doing is just completely changing around and saying, well, what about if I just ate whole food, like real food? Um, and that, that's, I think, the change people need to be making. Mm. And it's not, it's not like that we're saying that you can't eat those foods. Just know that you're not eating it for the right reasons. You're not, you know, mm. you, there are just like they're candy or they're lollies. If you want to eat them, great. But just know that they're not a replacement for, you know, being, being a healthy alternative. But let's go back to this allergy thing, right? Let's talk yeah. about gluten because obviously a yeah. lot of people are allergic to gluten and there's a lot of celiac disease or diagnosed celiac disease uh, lately. So, you know, Damien, tell us, you know, why do you think that's happening? Uh, you know, I know you have, you know, you went to this uh, seminar recently and talked about, you know, how 
every gluten affects all of us. Can you explain a little bit to the audience? Because obviously some people are really sensitive and some people are not so sensitive. You know, how do we know the difference? Well, the celiac disease is actually an allergy. So it's, it's quite a significant and serious disease, so to speak. And so, um, and, and there's two schools of thought here. So in the school of thought from a preventative health approach, you know, making sure that you're staying really well and keeping really well, my advice would be to get off the gluten as quickly as you can because gluten is going to have a negative effect on everybody. We, we spoke about the zonulin gene a few weeks ago, a few episodes ago. And so if you need to understand why it affects everybody, go back a few episodes and listen to the zonulin discussion. But what we're now finding, I think, and it's it's probably now that uh, general practitioners, GPs, and specialists are, I suppose, looking for reasons why people are now bloating or why they've got flattened villi in their colon or why they're iron deficient or vitamin D deficient. So they're actually looking now for the cause of it, as opposed to saying, "Oh, you've got iron deficiency anemia, you better get an iron shot." Oh, you've got vitamin D deficiency, here's some vitamin D tablets. So they're now no longer just saying you've got a supplement; they're actually saying, "Let's find the cause." And so. There's a lot more testing being done. Now, with all that testing being done, we're now finding out that there's a lot of people with the gene for celiac disease who may not actually have celiac disease, but they carry the gene. And then subsequently, we're finding out that their children might actually now be celiac disease sufferers as opposed to just celiac gene carriers. And so it's all starting to roll out. But here's here's what I think is the biggest problem. And I know that I'm going to offend some people here and we could actually get some hate mail as a result of this. I think that at large... The dietitians that actually get access to these people who are diagnosed with celiac disease are doing a really bad job. And their advice to the people with celiac disease is to find gluten-free alternatives as opposed to find a healthy way to eat gluten-free. And uh, there's a huge big difference there. So we, we've got two problems. One, there's a lot of people coming out and finding out they've got celiac disease. And two, there's a bucket load of people out there that are now eating really poorly and are developing other allergies and sensitivities because they're choosing such bad food. I mean, if I, I, everyone's, everyone's on mute, I'll just keep I reckon, saying. I reckon there's a third problem there, Damo. I actually was on mute then. I started talking and where else I was on mute. So sorry. Uh, I reckon there's a third problem there too, Damo. And uh, this was really clear when we had uh, Nora Gugaldis came out to Australia a few months ago. And uh, when she was talking, she was talking about the, uh, the lack of sensitivity of our gluten tolerance test that we do here in Australia um, and comparing that to one of the labs that she uses over in America. And, and basically what she was saying was there is a lot of people who actually really are sensitive and don't deal well with gluten who in our country are being told that, you know, are doing tests and being told that they're fine with gluten and then actually being told to go back and keep eating it. Um, and I've seen this with numerous people, I'm sure you guys have as well, where people, you know, cut out gluten, they're doing really well, they've actually noticed some changes, they've noticed some benefits, they've gone to the doctor or the dietitian or whoever it may be, who's then said, actually, do you know what? It's actually not true. You're fine with gluten. It must be something else. So go back to eating the gluten because, of course, they're an important part of the food pyramid and you don't want to miss out on those. So <laughs> you should go back to eat them. And you actually see people start to regress and get worse again um, fortunately, most people realize then that, hey, maybe the doctor doesn't know everything and maybe I can do it differently, but some of them don't. And, um, and so I think that's a third problem as well, where people are being told that, that, you know, because this particular test says it's okay, that it must be okay. When in actual fact, I find a, a lot, if not all people, are actually just better off getting rid of the gluten, whether or not they have that problem at all. Yeah, it's just about listening to your own body, isn't it? It's about just, you know, yeah. knowing like how food affects you. Like I know that certain food affects me and I'm sure you guys are the same thing. Like you know you can, when you eat this, 
It's going to cause some sort of reaction. It might not be a massive reaction, but there might be a smaller reaction. Like say for milk, for example, you might have something dairy or you might just have a bit of cheese or whatever, and you get that mucus or the phlegm in the back of your throat. You know, you know that that's going to happen. And so if that's happening, then you know you should either you can choose to avoid it or you keep on taking it and you're going to get that same reaction. But I think it's being aware. I think that's number one key. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, that's actually the most scientific thing you can do because, you know, we can do studies to see what happens to the population as a broad spectrum or we can do, you know, we can come up with tests that work for most people, but there's probably no test that works 100% for all people. And at the end of the day, that the best way to know whether something works for you is to introduce it and see what happens and then cut it out and see what happens and reintroduce it and see what happens. And, and that's the actually only way you're going to find out whether it has an effect on you as an individual. And I think what that's a really it? good way to do it. Here's the interesting thing is that the argument is that if you cut out gluten and you take away the challenge, then it's very difficult to actually then find out whether or not you've got gluten sensitivity, a celiac disease or anything else. Because if you take that out of your diet, you don't mount an immune response. And yeah. so subsequently, uh, when you go to the doctor and you say, oh, I've been feeling not too, not too flash or whatever, and they go, oh, well, let's do a test, you might have had a couple of weeks off the gluten because you thought that that would be a good thing to do because you suspected it. Um, or you took it, you got advice that said get off the gluten, and, uh, and so you did. And then when you got the test, well, because you haven't been having it, you're now not having a immune response to it. So they go, oh, your test came back fine, no worries. Yeah, you're right to go. Get get back into it, you know. And so that's a bit of uh, it's what we call a false negative, and uh, and and many people actually have that experience. Now, the challenge with that is is that if you need to have a diagnosis before you actually do something that's going to be life saving, then you're better off eating the gluten before you go get the test. However. If you're one of those people that's, you know, okay, yep, I don't feel too good with gluten. I think I'll just take it out and I'll never go back there again. If you're one of those people and you've got celiac disease and uh, and, and you don't get the test and you don't get the diagnosis, uh, you might actually think that you can just go back to it and then you're actually going to cause yourself some disease problems. So like you're going to flatten your villi out, you're going to increase your risk of certain cancers. You will most probably get something like osteoporosis or vitamin D deficiency, osteopenia. And you've got to be really, really mindful that if you're the sort of person that needs a diagnosis to make a decision, you better go get the test. But if you're the kind of person that can just rock on and just make a decision and then that's all okay, then just make the decision. Jamie, when your experience, uh, when someone goes off gluten, um, when would they feel the difference? You know, just for the listeners, you know, on average. Look, most people notice it immediately. You know, it can be within a week, some people within a couple of days, some people might take about a month or two, but it, I suppose it depends on the degree of loading and then the other types of sensitivities that people have got. So let, I, I, I say sensitivity, but I could be saying allergy at the same time, but I don't want people to think that just because they've got a sensitivity, they're allergic to it. And I don't want people to think that because they've got an allergy, I'm playing it down and saying it's a sensitivity. I'm just kind of bundling that whole thing up. Mm. But, you know, some people will have an allergy to gluten, and then some sensitivities to other food, and those sensitivities might actually continue to make them feel terrible, um, even though they cut out the gluten. So often it, it's worth you know working in or writing a diet diary down so that you can really work out what's actually driving that poor sluggish feeling or the the sensation of overwhelming fatigue continuously or the achy bones or the achy joints or the um, the rash across your nose or the dandruff or the psoriasis or the thyroid disorder or whatever's been going on inside your body, work out what sorts of foods are actually driving that by keeping a food diary. Mm, yeah, let's, I mean, let's move on for uh, just another allergy, for example. We've been talking a lot about gluten sensitivities and stuff. What, what are you seeing in practice? You know, What do you see of other people? Uh, what are they also allergic to? What's another big thing you've noticed? 
Oh, I think there's heaps of them at the moment. There seems to be all sorts of different sensitivities coming out. Like there seems to be a lot of people uh, lately. I've noticed a lot of people talking about nightshades. Um, there's obviously a huge range of people who don't deal well with dairy, um, and so you see that pretty commonly. Um, but even more so, you know, there's now people talk about a lot of people talking about eggs. There's people, you know, there, there seems to be there's just like a, a huge range of sensitivities that have come on more recently. And, and whether that's because we've just sort of become more aware of it and started looking into them and diagnosing and, and self-diagnosing often them more, um, or whether they're really that much on the increase, I'm not sure which it is. But it certainly seems that there are you know a lot more sensitivities there now. And, and I guess you know in some ways you can sort of look at something like gluten and think, okay, like you know particularly from my sort of paleo perspective. Gluten isn't something that perhaps we were designed to have. We didn't have it much until relatively recently. You know, it's you know from our William Davis interview, we know that it's changed a lot from the way it used to be. Um, so you kind of look at that and you think, well, that kind of makes sense to me. But then you hear someone going, well, actually, I'm allergic to fruit, and you think, like, really, like fruits and vegetables? Mm. You know, there's something wrong when people are getting allergic to fruits and vegetables. There's got to be something going on in our environment, in our lifestyle, in our you know what we're putting into our bodies that's meaning that we're just not you know dealing with stuff that actually we should be ideally perfectly okay to deal with. Um, and so that's, I think, the interesting question here is, well, why are we now becoming sensitive to things that, in theory at least, we, we really shouldn't be sensitive to? Um, and so I think, once again, we've got to really come back and look at our lifestyle and look at our environment and try and figure out you know, what it actually is that's triggering these immune responses in these people um, because something's not right. Mm. Damien, do you think it's a lot to do with the way food is being produced? You know, it's been changed and obviously for mass production through genetic modification. Do you think that's one? Obviously, it may not be the only thing, but do you think that's a, a major thing that we, we might be you know missing? Yeah, I think that there's the processing of food that's making things very, very simple. And so we're getting exposed to these simple sugars. But let's have a look at this, what, what's called FODMAP. Now, another friend of mine who's an absolute genius when it comes to food and nutrition, she's a dietitian, her name is Sue Shepard. She, uh, she designed a thing called the FODMAP program in conjunction with Monash University. And uh, oh, it might be Melbourne University. I better be careful there. I don't know who's got copyright on that one. But anyway, it's FODMAP. <laughs> it's FODMAP and Sue designed it. And... Uh, and FODMAP means fermentable, oligo, dye, um, mono, um, something, something. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's, it's an like F- that, right? Is it F-O-D-M-A-P? No, no, have a look. Try and Google it. Oh, I can't remember. But anyway, at the end of the day, what this means is that there's a whole lot of maldigested sugars in the gut that cause fermentation. That's what it is. And so it gets back to the inability of the digestive system to cope with the types of sugars that are going in. So if we talk about uh, fructose is one of the major types of uh, disaccharides that actually goes in. Oh, that's a, that's a, mono, that's a monosaccharide, isn't it? What's fructose? I think it's just it's just one, isn't it? I think it's just one. It's not a disaccharide. I didn't do well in organic chemistry. Oh, I can't remember. I can't remember. <laughs> Fructose appears to be the biggest challenger, but there's other things called fructans. And, and these things uh, appear in wheat and rye and barley and oats. So fructans are also there. Uh, and, and, and what we're finding and what she's discovered and what she created around this FODMAP eating program was that these sugars ferment in the gut. Now, as naturopaths, what we're finding is that if you – there's two things that we can do. One, we can increase the sugar load, like the the – Simple sugar, sucrose, you know, throwing some sucrose into the body and that seems to fix it up. 
Now, I don't, I don't think that's an ideal way to deal with it. Um, I think that the other way to deal with it, which many of us have actually been doing, is throwing in probiotics into people's bodies. And that helps them out enormously. So if you increase the bacteria count in the gut, um, then that actually helps people out enormously. Now, let's go back a few steps and go, well, how come people haven't got enough bacteria in their gut in the first place? Well, there's probably a couple of reasons. One would be antibiotics, and two would be the contraceptive pill, and three, <laughs> there's actually three reasons, uh, could be all the antibiotic stuff that people do, like putting on antiseptic lotions on their skin, using antiseptic washes, using antibacterial toothpaste, all of these sorts yeah. of things disrupt the bacteria in the body. And once you take one dose of antibiotics, you'll never, ever, ever get your good bacteria balance back to where it was when you were breastfeeding from your mum. And, and even things like just chlorine in the water, Damo, like it can be as simple yeah, as that. Like that's that's, that's that's in the water because it's good at killing bugs, and so that's why it's there. <laughs> so we shouldn't right. be surprised that when it gets inside of us, that it might kill some of these bugs too. But look, what do you what do you think about the role of inflammation in this, Damo? Because obviously, you know, there's a lot of things I think in our lifestyle that tend to cause us to be more inflamed, and some of those are the food things we've just spoken about. Some of them are just the stress levels in our lives, the lack of sleep, the you know, lack of exercise. That there's a whole lot of things that are causing an increase of inflammation in our body generally. Um, and I think that must be playing a part here somewhere in terms of this, you know, this overreaction, this over-response to, to, once again, you know, things that ideally we wouldn't be reacting to. Well, let's think about what comes first because there's a bit of a chicken and the egg sort of scenario here, right? Because what drives the inflammation in the first place? Is it the diet or is it other fa- factors within lifestyle? So yeah. could it be a sedentary lifestyle? Could it be training too hard? Could it be yeah. um, other things that we're eating? Maybe we're drinking too much uh, caffeine or more carbonated beverages. Might it be they're having too much processed food, not sleeping properly? You know, we've spoken to Ron Ehrlich, and Ron talks about the inflammatory process of not breathing well. And uh, and look, there's so many things. But what we do know is that when you throw foods that are in, go into your body that your body doesn't respond well to, you drive more inflammation, and that that then becomes a massive cascade because that inflammatory process is a uh, I suppose an upregulating process until you dump cortisol into your body, in which case that that's a whole another cascade of challenge. Mm, so I was just going to make up some words just to kind of finish this food FODMAP, sorry, just to make sure that everybody uh, understand what that was just in case. It's <laughs> fermentable, oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. See? Oh, uh, see the A, the A was and what got the me. Three, yeah. And, yeah. Um, you can actually look up uh, Dr. Shepard's words at shepardworks.com.au just to kind of put more information. Yeah, and she's great. We should get her on. Maybe we'll get her on. We'll get her on. Definitely. That'll be a good one. Yeah, she'll cover all that off. She's the expert. Let's do that. So, yeah, look, probiotics, that's important. So where do you get probiotics from? Fermented foods. Funny that, hey. And so there's some fermented foods that you can get that are that are terrific. Um, but you can also get, you know, your tablet versions. You know, you think about the Inner Health Plus that many people talk about. Uh, there's fermented fruits that you can actually get. Now, if you've got a, a FODMAP or a fructose issue, then you probably have to go with the tableted variety of the probiotics first because the the fermented style will probably blow your guts up a little bit just until you, you know, until everything's settled down. So usually, if you're that sensitive, you've gone a long way away from being healthy and normal. You've got to now get all that back, get all that balance back, decrease that inflammation, settle the mucous membranes down by getting the good bugs in there. And it could take you about six to 12 months to get that settled to the point that you could then throw in some fermented food. Yeah, and kombucha is the one to go for, Damo. I love it. I'm a bit obsessed with it. I've been making kombucha every week for the last couple of months and just loving it. I'm all over uh, it. Yeah, yeah. Look, that, that is a good one. A lot of people don't know what that is. That's a little mus- a mushroom sort of fungus thing that grows 
um, on tea, and yes. uh, and, and then uh, and then all you do is you just drink its juice and grow another piece of mushroom. Mm. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's it's a, it's called a scoby. It's a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast, and uh, it looks pretty. It, it looks like pretty a... funky. It looks pretty funky. Like it looks like a kind of half dead squid. It's this little weird white lumpy thing, and uh, it looks a bit gross, and it kind of smells a bit gross, but it tastes awesome. And uh, particularly if you do it with berry tea, I've been doing it with berry tea. It's like this little berry flavored kombucha, and it's amazing. I love it. I was going to ask you how it tastes. Yeah, it tastes good. Yeah, it tastes good. Yeah, I'm all over it now. Got it all sorted <laughs> in your cave. Uh, can I just say that there's people going, yeah, yeah, I'm going to race out there, I'm going to buy it straight away, or I'm going to make some myself. It doesn't yeah. taste good straight away. Like it, <laughs> it doesn't at all. It doesn't at all. Just you understand. Mind, it. Though, you haven't had mine. You got to come around and try it out, mate. Just give yourself a bit of time. Like just expect it not to taste amazing. Uh, but over time, you'll grow to enjoy it and maybe even love it, like Brett. <laughs> <laughs> it's like running barefoot. Don't go I'm for hurt. a marathon on the first day. Yeah. I'm hurt, Damo. I am. <laughs> <laughs> Brett, you've evolved quite a lot. You, you know. <laughs> now, actually, Lawrence said something earlier on, which I thought was really interesting and it's worth actually touching on, Brett. And I think this will float your boat a lot. Lawrence in the intro said something about how could we have evolved to a point where we're now here and – and I just want to make the point that I don't think we've evolved enough to handle the food that we're getting access to. And I think you'd agree with that, Bredo, because mm, yeah. coming from a Paleolithic point of view, we haven't really evolved into a state of being that allows us to have that much sugar in our diet or that much processed food in our diet. And I think this is where we're facing the biggest amount of challenge is that people are going, oh, yeah, there's an alternative to gluten or there's a fructose-friendly thing. I'm going to go get that and uh, it may not be good for them. And so in terms of evolution, it could in fact be de-evolution or devolution. We're actually regressing in terms of your body's ability to procreate and do a great job to make humankind stronger. And obviously this comes back to kids, you know, like raising kids in this type of environment and, you know, feeding our kids those type of foods, you know, when you say they're not evolved enough to eat that. So what are some of the key things that uh, parents need to know Obviously, we know the answers to this, but I mean, I just want to be clear on this so that we know what are the type of foods that we need to make sure our kids are eating so that they don't have their bodies not challenged at such a young age so that they're going to develop into all these problems when they hit teenagers and, and adult. Well, I think, you know, a lot of people today said, oh, my son or my daughter is really fussy. There was a guy there today that I spoke to who's 25 years old. Um, he looked really crook. Like, he looked really, really crook. And he was living with his mum, and his mum came up to me and said, oh, he's a really fussy eater. And I said, well, that's his choice. Like, at this age, he's now got an adult developed palate. He could choose now, if he wanted to get better, to eat all the good foods, and he chooses to eat all the bad foods. So I looked at him and I said, this is all your problem. You're making it someone else's problem. It's up to you. But with the kids, you've got to encourage them to only eat good food. And as soon as you throw in the bad stuff, as soon as you throw in the tricky stuff, you make your whole life tougher because they're going to be more, I suppose, uh, excited by the stronger flavors as opposed to the weaker flavors and the colorful packaging as opposed to the beautiful natural colors that fruit and vegetables come in. You need to introduce these fruits and vegetables to your children at a young age. You need to minimize their exposure to gluten at a really young age too because Everybody has some degree of sensitivity to gluten. Everybody. Now, if you want to really blow that out, it, it is addictive. And so if you're going to blow that out, you're going to give them gluten straight away. So if you can peek back and hold back on the gluten, give them other types of grains if you've got to give them grains, then just you know do that. But just hold back on the gluten until their gut's at least a little bit mature. So I'm saying two or three or four years old. Mm. What about also the babies, you know, when we introduce food to the babies, um, you know, at six months old, you know, the types of food 
also dictate um, like the amount of sugar you put into those food or the t- the sugary type tasty foods. Like if yeah. you add them fruit first, they're going to get that sweet taste. Do you do you still agree with that? Where we start with vegetables first rather than the fruit? What what's your sure. stance on that? Yeah, for sure. I definitely go veggies first, absolutely, um, and and I think that's really important. So you know, just mash it up, make it small. There are some people out there that actually give their children foods that have been, um, I suppose, soft prepared, um, and let them just chew on it in a whole form. But I just think it's easier to get children to have partially mashed or partially pureed stuff, just so they can get used to some of the texture, some of the flavors, mush around to the top of their palate, to the back of their throat, just so that they don't stimulate a. Uh, a shallow gag reflex and they get all of these nice textures going on in their mouth as opposed to just pulped up or not pulped up like mashed up pureed food that's super soft that just goes down like liquid because you know i think you actually got to try and get textures into these children at a really young age so they know what to expect even before they've got teeth but i would also say that you shouldn't be putting food solid foods into children who haven't got teeth that's the other thing but i know there's people out there listening right now that have got advice from their maternal child healthcare nurse that said, oh, you've got to feed your children from four months old solid foods these days. And and I would say breast is best. Go for breast as long as you possibly can and bring in solid foods when they've got teeth. And, the, you know, the number one thing I would say is when you do start your baby on solid foods, like it shouldn't be white processed carbohydrates. Mm. Like it's amazing the stuff that's cool. out there that's cool. just considered normal to start your kids on. And it's just not even real food. It's just not Farrix. anything. How that, bad yeah. Yeah, I was, I was trying to avoid saying that, but yeah, no, terrible. I'm happy to say, <laughs> happy to say you know, like it's just if you're feeding your children farrax, yes, millions of people have done it before you, yes, yeah. and they've survived, but it's not the best thing to do. No, it's not. You start with some real food, and like you said, some veggies, and even you know, we would even puree up like nuts and meat and all sorts of stuff like that. And I know people will freak out about that because they're sort of worried about nut allergies and all those sort of things, but. But we do all that sort of stuff and get all the good stuff into your kids because really they need what you need. They need real food. I think it's also, you know, even though if your child rejects it, I think it's important to continually throughout, you know, I mean, this is like years of process, process right? It's to yeah. continually introduce and get them to try different things. If they don't like it, yeah. don't force it down the throat. Just, okay, that's fine. But at least be proud that they actually tried it because it's important for them to just continually try new things rather than saying, no, oh, I don't like it. I don't like broccoli and then never yeah. feed them broccoli ever. And do you know what the other one is? Is don't tell your kids they're not going to like it. Like so many parents go, oh, no, he's not going to like that. And so they don't actually give them a chance. So give your kids a chance. Like give them the food. See if they like it. Don't put the idea in their head they're not going to like it before they've even had a crack at it. And so, yeah, just keep offering it and keep talking about it and give them the opportunity to see whether they actually might like it. Yeah. Well, that's been you know full of information, guys. Thank you so much for uh, your insights on the algae. I hope you guys got a lot of, a lot from this particular episode. And I love for you guys you know, to actually go to our Facebook page and tell us what you think about, you know, allergies and what you've done about it and some of the issues that you might have had. So join us on facebook.com slash the wellness guys. And of course, go to our iTunes channel and subscribe and make your comments below that particular episode. And these guys are typing something. I have no idea what they're saying. So, <laughs> have, you got, have you got a new script? It sounds oh, yeah, like I can't. I can't, <laughs> I, I can't read two scripts at the same time. So um, you just beeping off. Anyways, until next week, guys, begin creating walls into your lives. Leave by example. Let's change the world health together. Join us next week on The Wellness Guys Show. Hi, Brett Hill from That Paleo Show and The Wellness Guys here. Well, the Facebook buzz after the Wellness Summit has just been unbelievable. Deborah said the summit was inspiring and empowering. Jen Fellows said she learnt so much amazing information that she thought her brain was going to explode. Well, hold on to your hat, because if you miss the summit, guess what? We recorded the entire lot so that you can have the summit in your living room forever. So to order the Wellness Summit 10 DVD home study program for just 197 bucks, simply go to www.thewellnesscouch.com and click on shop. 
This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter, The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.